welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm here with my co-host, David Moser. Hi, Jeremiah. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And joining us from the West Coast of the United States at a very early hour is our guest, Marquitas Presswood. How you doing, Marquitas? Hey, Jeremiah. Hey, David. How's it going? I'm an early riser and happy to be here. I have to say, I've been really excited for this, this podcast for many reasons. One, we're going to be talking about uh, Marquitas's new documentary, Yellow Jazz, Black Music, about the history of jazz and in Shanghai and in China. But the other thing, too, I'm excited about this is, I was thinking about this, Marquitas is probably like one of the first people I met in China. I mean, we we're going. I mean, we're going back a little bit here, but early, like I remember, this must have been yeah. early two thousand. Like I think you know, like like most uh, you know aspiring academics, we were doing English teaching for 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 a company, and there was a training session, and it was the first time I'd ever been at an English teaching company or a training session, and so I was kind of like, okay. And then Marquitas comes in, and I guess you you'd done this before, and you were so polished and like so professional. I, I was like. I'm like, wow, I just thought I was going to go in and like be like a living tape recorder. I didn't realize this actually would require skills. But yeah, I've, uh, it's, it's great to see you. And uh, I, you've had such a, an amazing career even before the documentary. So I hope we can talk about that uh, as well. But, but, but let's just jump right in. What was the genesis of the film? And I, I know this was something you were researching for your PhD. So I guess the question along with this, what was the genesis for this film is, you know, why film to present your research and, and, and how did that come about? I needed a break from the dissertation, to be quite honest with you. And the documentary was a creative way for me to uh, just take a break from the writing and the, from the research. Um, so part of the documentary is based on a dissertation. But then part of it, I, I would say the majority of it, uh, because it's contemporary, um, goes into like, you know, the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, isn't a part of the, uh, my dissertation. But the, the early historical part, yeah, some of that comes out of that. But I think that um, if I'm honest with myself, I would have to go way back to the early 2000s when I met uh, Liu Yuan. Um, he had a club, the um, West Wing Road in Beijing, which was a CD cafe. I remember walking in there one night with some friends and there was this Chinese cat blowing um, Sonny Rollins's um, St. Thomas. And you know, that's like a Calypso song. It's pretty intricate in terms of its ry rhythms and melodies. And, and this, this cat was just, I mean, he was all up in it. He was just planning and improvising. And I was like, whoa, jazz in China? And um, I mean, over the years, uh, I struck up a kind of a friendship, I guess, with Leo Yuan. I mean, we were never like, you know, buddies or anything. We didn't have each other's phone numbers. But every time I would go out to the club and he would be there, or if I would see him, he would say hi, he would speak. He was very nice, very humble guy. We would talk about music. And one day he actually um, let me record him. Uh, given, um, he gave me an interview and um, it turned out into this dialogue where we were both asking each other questions. I cannot find this tape. It's been lost to history. And as a historian, I am so angry with myself for, for having misplaced that, having lost it or whatever. But he was talking about his sort of, uh, he was talking to me about how he got into jazz and how, you know, of course, John Coltrane, but he also loved Grover Washington Jr. And, you know, for your, you know, listeners, you know, Grover Washington Jr. is like the king of like sort of R&B jazz, right? You know, very, you know, R&B rhythms. And, and I was like, you like Grover? 
And and we sort of instantly bonded because, you know, John Coltrane and Grover Washington Jr. were the two saxophonists that I fell in love with when I started listening to jazz. You know, he was just a really nice guy, so humble. Marquise had probably mentioned, I don't think we quite explained who Liljar is. He was and still is the saxophone player for Tsuijian, the rock the rock star, which which probably most people will know, and was, as you say, the probably one of the first people to start playing jazz in China. Yeah, and he, um, so he's been, you know, he's a cool guy, you know, in my time in Beijing, and I, I mean, I really regret I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find him for the documentary, and we were running out of time, and and uh, so I can't get a hold of him. Um, but yeah, so he was really important in terms of my introduction to like jazz in China. Fast forward later, that was really sort of the impetus for me, like saying, hey, you know, I can do this. I mean, the documentary is very much a story of jazz in Shanghai, but there's a whole nother thing that could be done with Beijing, right? I mean, I, I kind of just skirted a little bit, and also, David, you talk about it, but there, there's a lot more that can be done with the whole the Beijing side of jazz, right? Which I think is also very, very important. Well, why don't we dig into the, the, the really historical aspect, which is jazz in China in the 20s and 30s. Probably most people don't really know much about that. Even people in China and even people who play jazz don't really know much about it. Your documentary is so amazing, um, the way you've, you've pieced it all together. And some of the footage you have of those musicians in the 20s and 30s is is astoundingly good and rare. I have mustard, but I never have seen before. Yeah, so one of the first uh, African-American bands is probably the one with Jack Carter, drummer Jack Carter, um, Teddy Weatherford, who is a uh, stride pianist, and then uh, Valida Snow, who was this incredible uh, performer who was contemporaries with Josephine Baker and Ethel Waters. Um, she had appeared, let's start with Valida Snow, because I think she's right, just fascinating for me. Um, Valida Snow was this um, young uh, singer, uh, trumpeter, trumpet player, she was a composer, a ranger, she was a dancer. I mean, she had all the talent in the world. I mean, she was really world class. W.C. Handy uh, said about her that she was probably the second best trumpet player in the world. Teddy Weatherford, I think, was a little bit jealous because he said, well, she's just still in all of Louis Armstrong's licks, right? But Velida Snow was an extremely talented um, musician, um, just entertainer. Um, and so, you know, she came to uh, Shanghai first, I believe, in 1926, 27, 28, spent a year, a uh, year or two in Shanghai, traveled around Asia and um, performed there to mostly a lot of sort of elite upper crusts like colonialist uh, Europeans and local people, obviously, who could afford the entrance ticket or, or just hear them from the outside. So she spends her entire career mostly in Asia and Europe. So a lot of people don't know about her and, and haven't heard about her because um, she didn't do a lot of recording in the States. Um, we do have some of her recordings um, on old shellac records and stuff that's been transferred to CD now. Uh, some stuff, not a lot of stuff, but people don't generally know. We think about Josephine Baker and Ethel Waters, but I think we should really, really, you know, um, give a lot more attention to uh, Velida Snow as well, um, who was a phenomenal entertainer. And then you had, of course, Teddy Weatherford, who was the, this famous stride pianist um, born in Virginia to um, coal mine um, a family. He ha he's like a very precocious kid, learns how to play piano very early. 
he um, has near perfect pitch or perfect pitch. Um, they discover that like when he's like six or seven years old. So he, he's so he learns piano really quickly. As an adult, he became or as a young adult, he became a very he's a big man. I mean, we're talking 1920s, 30s, but he's over six feet tall. Huge hands that are great for playing the piano. Huge, but he's still very nimble with them. So um, he eventually starts playing jazz in local places around his community, and then gets a job to um, go to, um, um, no, he's traveling around the, uh, and they eventually find their, make their way to, Ch to Chicago. Um, that's a big hotbed for jazz in the 1920s. But his, uh, the person who was leading his band at the time, I can't remember his name, um, fell ill when he started working at another gig in the Moulin Rouge in Chicago that he played for uh, a couple of years. But he eventually works in a band uh, I believe it's with Eskin Tate, um, who's also, uh, he's also in the same band with Louis Armstrong. So, you know, Louis Armstrong and Teddy Weatherford are playing in the same band in Chicago for at least a year. And um, they're, they're both honing their chops. And Louis Armstrong is the person in the band who's starting to get all the accolades. And Teddy Weatherford, not to be outdone, you know, wanted that. Um, when Jack Carter came calling for, you know, people to go to, to uh, Shanghai to play, Teddy was like, okay, let's, let's do that, you know? And he left and, and never came back. And he also spent uh, his entire career, you know, in Asia. You know, he did a, a tour in, in, in Paris, but mostly he spent his time in Asia. But by, you know, listening to the recordings of him, and we have a few, he's really amazing uh, pianist, very percussive, with his uh, left hand, and people talk about his strikes, that his left hand was just so dominant, but he was also, you know, very fluid with his right in terms of his, you know, arpeggios and runs and all these different things like that. So he was one hell of a pianist, and people in Asia, particularly Shanghai, loved him. When Langston Hughes um, wrote about him in his autobiography, I Wonder As I Wonder, he said, you know, Teddy could walk into any room in the quote-unquote Orient, and people would stand up and give him an applause. So, you know, he was e extremely popular. And jazz musicians in Shanghai, particularly black jazz musicians in Shanghai and other parts of Asia, were making a lot of money. The money was really good. Teddy Weatherford in Shanghai, at the height of his career there, was making probably six to $800 a month. And um, $600 could buy you a brand new car. So, but if we're looking at that in terms of PPP, you know, power purchasing, you know, I mean, it, it's a lot, a significantly, a significant amount of money. Um, even in in the Philippines, for example, um, I was reading that um, sometimes some of the bands there would make five hundred dollars a day, you know, for a performance. I mean, so it gives you an idea of just how in demand not only jazz music, you know, was, was a demand for jazz music, but, you know, for African-American musicians who were kind of seen at this time as somehow embodying this, you know, authenticity of jazz, right? You know, this comes from black people, so we need to hear black people play it. And even in Shanghai, there was sort of a tiered system for what jazz musicians got what. If you're a black jazz musician, you got paid a lot more money. Um, if you were Filipino, you got paid the least. But um, so there was still this like jazz racial hierarchy of like, you know, wages um, at that time. 
this was dance music. I mean, Shanghai was a was a ballroom, you know, mecca. I suppose the a lot of the people listening to it had heard, uh, you know, early ballroom music and also early twenties. Uh, ballroom, well, well, not there wasn't ballroom music specifically, but dance music, jazz was da- dance music, right? Uh, and they had access to the phonograph. Did, how much did Shanghai, you know, youth and people were buying these phonograph records? Had they actually heard the Teddy Weatherford records, and had they heard the the Buck Clayton or whoever was playing there, or Velida Snow? Had they actually heard these and came and actually heard the music live, or the, were they hearing this music for the first time? You know, I would imagine that jazz in Shanghai, I mean, if we're being very specific about where jazz was being played, I would definitely say in the treaty ports, right? Shanghai, Tianjin, um, those places. And I think that, well, not think, but know that, you know, it was ubiquitous, right? So even if you didn't have the money to, let's say, let's say go to a elite in ballroom like the Canadrome, and of course, you know, if you weren't the right kind of Chinese person with money, you couldn't go there. Um, they were still hearing jazz. Um, there's a radio station that played jazz all the time. There were phonograph records that people were playing on the streets. Um, and then some of the jazz musicians start playing, uh, particularly Buck Clayton's um, band, who started off in the Canadrome, and because of a uh, I, I call it kind of like a racial incident, had to uh, go and play in a second, third tier uh, uh, Chinese club and with working class Chinese people. And so this working class club, I think it was the Casanova, um, uh, Buck Clayton writes about having to perform Chinese folk songs or sort of jazzify Chinese folk songs, how he had to transcribe, you know, that music and then play it in sort of like a, a jazzy way for for those uh, um, constituents and, and those um, ballrooms. So a lot of people were listening to them. It was also in the writing, you know, the the uh, Chinese writers of the period were writing about jazz. People like Mu Shiring and other people were, you know, making jazz clubs or jazz artists part of their story. So people were reading about jazz as well, too. So the music's everywhere. And this is not to say that there weren't other musics that were being played in Shanghai. Obviously, there were. But, you know, my argument is that, you know, jazz was sort of like the zeitgeist of the age, right? It was that music. Um, it's like when you, when you go to a club today, they're playing other music, but it's, it's hip hop that gets people out on the floor, right? You know, and, and right, it, it right. gets people to the club, right? And right. jazz was the same way in the early 20th century, right? It was, right. It was what hip hop is today to the music industry. Even if you have like a, a song or a ballad, there's always that, that hip hop improv- improvisation in the middle, right? You know, um, and then you get back to the song. I mean, it's the same thing. So jazz was, was the, was the first, I argue, in terms of popular music in the 20th century to be that kind of explosive um, music. And again, not disavowing or discounting the other music that was being played, but I think that jazz was special and it was important uh, for world music. Buck Clayton, in his, in his writing about his time in Shanghai, he called it the, the happiest two years of his life. And uh, I think probably you've touched on something uh, we know not just in the 20s, but also in the 50s, 60s, a lot of jazz musicians African-American jazz musicians would move to Europe and find that they were much more accepted there and, and their status and their pay 
was much better than it was in the United States. And it sounds to me like Shanghai was the same way. But Clayton would talk about he'd finish a gig, you know, and go out in the street and he'd be just besieged with autograph hunters and people just wanting to follow him home. And, and you know, he was like a, a welcomed by like a hero which is a something probably he was not getting when he was playing gigs in, in New York City or where, or wherever, this hero worship kind of thing. But before we go on any further, you did mention Langston Hughes, and I think probably a lot of people, maybe, we don't have to get into it because it's not directly related to jazz, but what was Langston Hughes doing there, and did, they, did their paths cross? Did the jazz musicians and Langston Hughes' paths cross? Yeah, Langston Hughes was on his way back home from the Soviet Union, he had spent a year there, uh, ostensibly to film um, this uh, production, this this uh, Soviet Union production called Black and White. And the script was horrible. The director really didn't know anything about, you know, African American history. Uh, Langston Hughes tried to work with the the script, but eventually they just all gave up. So he went to Soviet Union with like about twenty other like socialites from um, the United States, particularly Harlem. Elaine Locke was one of those who was the, the, the African-American intellectual scholar who wrote about you know the New Negro Movement or the Harlem Renaissance, who was uh, also a Rhodes Scholar. Um, he was there, and, and he and Langston actually they didn't like each other, didn't get along. They're just different people. But um, but but Hughes eventually stayed in stayed on in um, the Soviet Union for about a year because he was getting paid really good money for his writings, right? Um, he also met someone named uh, Salan Chun or Sylvia Chun, who is the biracial daughter of Eugene Chun, um, who was uh, China's first foreign minister. Um, so there's this biracial half Trinidadian, half Chinese woman who he meets, who he calls his, his girlfriend that winter or whatever, who I think becomes... Um, very important for him in terms of um, introducing him to people in Shanghai. So she introduces him to um, Harold Isaacs, um, who becomes sort of like his cultural interlocutor in, in Shanghai when he visits, and also um, a Madam, uh, John, uh, not Madam Zhang Kai-shek, but um, uh, Song Qingling. I so he introduced her to Song Qingling. Didn't his meeting with Song Qingling actually get Langston Hughes in a little bit of trouble when he ended up in when he was trying to sail home via Japan? The uh, Japanese military intelligence had had record had noted his meeting with Song Qingling, and it ended up I think it, it almost got him uh, arrested or at least sur under surveillance in Japan. Am I do I remember that right? Yeah, uh, Langston Hughes was a, a black man traveling in the 1930s. He was already in trouble. <laughs> <But> <laughs> But uh, but but to, to your point, yes. So um, when he got to Shanghai, he was being followed not only by you know uh, the Japanese, but um, um, the the intelligence community there. They thought that he was a um, a courier for you know the Soviets. So he's he's being followed, and um, so um, there's actually he's he's um, he has sort of a dossier on his time in in Shanghai and in Japan as well. Um, so they're following him around. They're saying like he's hanging out with these hotheads like Harold Isaacs. And when he goes to Japan, yes, the first time um, it, everything goes pretty smoothly. But on his way back. Um, going back to the U.S. when he goes to Japan the second time, he's, uh, again, shadowed anyone he came into contact with. 
was uh, arrested or, or kicked out of the country. So they thought that he was carrying papers for the Soviets um, you know, into, into uh, China and into Japan. So yeah, that, that did impact his, his trip. So in regards to his connections in Shanghai, he met with some leftist writers. Um, there's still, you know, argument whether or not he met with Lu Xun. Um, I believe he did. Um, I think they were just two peas in a pod in terms of their um, intellectual output and what they believed. You know, Langston Hughes was the first African-American writer to really push and promulgate like vernacular in his literature and in his writing, you know, in his blues writing and to write in an everyday language that represented the working class. Right. And I think Lu Xun and his Bai Hua um, uh, had a, a, a very similar, like, um, you know, uh, want for, for what he wanted ch the Chinese language to be and, and how he wanted to get it out to the masses. So I think those two would have had a lot in common. And I think um, that they perhaps they did meet clandestinely. Uh, he writes about this, um, Langston Hughes does, in, in his journal. And I believe uh, Lu Xun has a couple of notes that he writes about this as well. But they did meet through Harold Isaacs, who actually knew Lu Xun and Mao Dun personally. A year after, I believe a year or two, a year after um, Langston Hughes leaves Shanghai, I believe Lu Xun or, or Mao Dun actually write the preface to uh, one of Harold Isaacs' books. I think it's Straw Sandals or vice versa. But they knew each other. It was a very small clique of like left-wing, elite left-wing writers, journalists in Shanghai at that period. And they and they all knew each other. So I think, you know, he would have definitely, you know, found some way to, to meet Hughes during that time. Um, and, and to your question about, you know, did Hughes be any any jazz musicians? Yeah, yeah, he he hung out with Teddy Weatherford when he was there. I, you know, the jazz musicians there were like friends with everybody. You know, there were were uh, Russian people, Japanese people, all in his coterie, right? So there were all these different, you know, hanger-ons or friends or what have you as a, a part of his group. And so they invited Langston uh, to his house um, for a fried chicken and biscuit dinner. You know, his bon voyage party. And uh, apparently they were they got a late start and, and Lynx is like, come on, man, I got to get out of here. You know, the food <laughs> smells good, but but I got to go. So uh, apparently, you know, they, they get the food to go. They're running out and, and Teddy Weatherford is driving. You know, I mean, look, there's this black man driving in Shanghai with his own car in the 1930s. He's driving, you know, Langston Hughes back to his um, hotel, his room. They get his stuff, take him to the um to the bun, where he make he makes the very last um, little skiff that's going out to the um, um, the, the ship. Um, but yeah, he, he meets them. He goes to the club. He goes to the Canadrome. Um, he meets the uh, the managers of some of the other black talent that's there. The uh, the Mackie twins, who who were not twins and but they not brothers, but they were this dynamic dancing duo. And uh, there's this one passage um, in, in Langston Hughes's book where the manager's saying, hey, can you talk to these boys for me? And they could be really great and I can take them to the top. And, and Langston's like, I'm not their fathers. You know? Like, <laughs> you know, why are you asking me to talk to them? I, said, I don't know what to tell these boys. You know? <laughs> but yeah, so he, he meets a lot of the musicians there and hangs out. And, and actually, he writes a line in his book that, you know, he wished that 
he was a musician and wished that he was a musician and, and that he could travel around the world and, and make all this money. But he was like, alas, I'm just a writer. You know, uh, <laughs> just a writer. I'm just a writer. So the, so the lifestyle that he saw those jazz musicians living in Shanghai had to be amazing. I mean, think about it. It's the it's it's during the middle of the Great Depression. And, and those those guys, those people were living like 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 kings and queens. You know, one of the things about your documentary, Marquitas, is that it's not only about the, the you know, the sort of 20s, 30s, the sort of you know, Republican era, but you also bring the story forward into the present day. And of course, it doesn't skip over, but there's this long period after 1949 when jazz is definitely not an acceptable form of music, at least ideologically. And one of the things I, I was kind of curious about, you know, jazz comes back in a form in the 1980s, and that's something you've discussed in the documentary. When it comes back in the 1980s, was that because that it had survived kind of underground and then kind of came back above ground in the 80s? Or was it a situation where it was kind of like an, a, a species that went extinct when the ecosystem changed? And then many years later, when the ecosystem improves, it was reintroduced into you know, into that environment and then, you know, flourished again. Were there any connections between pre-1949 and, and then into the 1980s? Or was that disconnect? Was that Were those ruptures just really so, so strong? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there was a little bit of both. Um, I think that there were obviously, you know, former, you know, musicians, singers of the day, who were, you know, struggled against um, during the Cultural Revolution, right? Definitely. But I also think that there were those who were savvy enough, you know, smart enough to like hang low and lay low until um, until the situation got better. So you, you still had people who knew how to play the music to a certain degree um, living in, in Shanghai. Those who couldn't escape, those who didn't escape, couldn't escape, right? Um, when in the Communist Party came into power in 49, they were still there and they just had to be quiet. You know, maybe bury your instrument, get rid of your instrument, get rid of the music, maybe just hide it somewhere. But they were always there. They were all, um, but, but just had a, a good sense to just say, okay, this is not something that we can do right now. Um, and, and when the time was right, um, you see some of these musicians coming back out. I, again, I didn't have a chance to interview um, some of those musicians because they're like their 80s and 90s now. But um, I know Wilson Chun, who's one of the saxophonists who was, who's in a documentary, he was saying that, yeah, there, there are some, some older guys who are, who are playing, you know, still playing in the hotel. You know, they came back out in their 80s and their 90s and start, you know, playing the music again, right? I mean, of course, to our modern ears, you're like, hmm, that doesn't sound like, you know, no. jazz or, <laughs> you know. But, but, but it's, what's amazing about that is that after all those years, they remembered what they could and played what they remembered, you know. I mean, and that, and that truly is amazing and attests to the power, you know, of, of the music. I thought that was extremely fascinating. You do have some um, um, people from that era who were still living when jazz was allowed to be played again uh, in public in China. And then you have this new generation, like Liu Yuan and Cui Jian, you know, who are from, you know, the late 80s, you know, early 90s, who are like, 
you know, let's, this is interesting music. This is, this is pretty good. And so then there's renewed interest in the art form. And then that, but that takes time and it took time to develop and it's still developing, right? You know, I would argue that most of the people who listen to jazz in China right now are probably passive listeners. Um, you know, um, you have a, a jazz festival, you go because in Ch- you, that's where everybody's going this weekend, you know, and, 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 and through that, more people become interested and say, oh, this, I like this. This is nice. You know, I like the feelings that are, you know, the last time I went to uh, Jay-Z's Jazz Festival, I was uh, listening to uh, Branford Marcellus. And Branford Marcellus is straight ahead contemporary, like stuff that's not what I would consider, you know, the, the, the newbie, the person just being introduced to jazz would probably like. But I was looking around and I was seeing like a lot of people were like really digging it. They were like really responding to like the emotions that the band was creating. You know, it's like we don't have to really understand the ABCs of jazz, but just understand the kind of emotive feelings that, that jazz is giving you. So uh, it was really great to see that, you know, uh, great to see like you know, all these Chinese people are just like, yeah, that's that's cool music. Right. You know, and, and then you have a lot of, you know, Chinese jazz players now who are working on their craft and, 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 and really trying to, you know, um, not just play jazz, but, but really understand it. And that's that last point that even Theo Croker makes in the documentary, right? If you want to, you know, it's okay to, you can play the notes, you know, and, and Wilson Chun says this as well, you know, you can learn how to play the notes. Um, but that last part, that, that feeling that's put into the music, that's cultural, historical, and if you really want to get into that, that's that last bit of information that you have to get um, to, to to really go go over the top. Now, there are those musicians who will disagree with me, right, you know, and feel like, ah, oh, you don't need that, Marquis. You can just, you know, this is, you know, Bill Frizzle, and you can, you know, he's not tied to some kind of social historical experience or whatever. And, and yeah, I get that. But, but I think that jazz deserves the same kind of attention that we give to any other great art form, right? I remember when I was in, in, in Japan and I was studying like Aikido and the Aikido teacher would not just teach me like, you know, the moves of self-defense. I had to actually start studying some history and some cult, the culture behind it, right? Like they, for, like it was, you have to do this. If you don't, then you can't, you know, study here. Now, of course, there's another Aikido sect that doesn't believe in that, but they coexist with each other, right? But, but, I, but I did feel like better knowing some of the history and the culture and what it comes out of. And I think it made me better at what I was doing. But yeah, I think jazz, like, you know, like those other art forms deserve that kind of, you know, reverence to the history and, and learning about it because it's rich, you know? And definitely if you want to move the tradition forward, you need to have an understanding of what came before you. You know, the same way when we're studying, you know, we've all been in PhD programs, right? So, you know, we have to learn, you know, the assumptions of the field and what books came before us and before we can write our own treaties or whatever, we have to know what's out there. And, and so it's the same thing with music, you know? I mean, that that's definitely beneficial. Uh, and so I hope more of that um, uh, takes place. But it was really great to see, like, these, these young, talented musicians, you know, Jasmine Chan, you know, um, you know who are, are really working on, like, this is my life, you know, I'm a, I'm a jazz musician, you know, and, and that's, that's fun to see. And in some odd ways, like, because of the size of the population, because of the money, 
that's in China. In some ways, China's going to be the place, or Asia's going to be the place that really keeps the music alive, right? Like, like in Jay-Z, you can go listen to jazz, live jazz every night in Shanghai if you want. There's not really a place you can do that in the United States, possibly besides New York. Now, you go to New York, or maybe even Boston, and you can hear a live, you know, jazz performance every night. But I would argue it's hard to find that in other cities. Maybe Chicago, maybe LA, maybe. But every night? And every night there's like packed audience? Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, China and, and the rest of Asia is going to be really important um, for jazz, at least economically in terms of like, you know, the performance aspect, right? And, and let's be real, that's where most jazz musicians are making their money. Yeah, but you must uh, feel like um, that jazz is, you know, it's a kind of a language after all. When, when your friend Liu Yar was first learning jazz, he had never heard it growing up. He encountered it when he encountered Grover Washington when he was whatever he was, 30 years old or something. Whereas now you have these young players, and they're amazing, who, who speak it as a native language. They've grown up hearing it. Through your listening and your hangout in Shanghai, do you get a sense, Does obviously jazz can take root here, and it has, and it has taken place in other Asian countries, Japan, for example, that are crazy about jazz. Do you think that uh, what are the possibilities of jazz becoming, developing its, in China, jazz in China developing in its own kind of identity as Chinese jazz that when you listen to it? Or do you think that, that, that the sort of mingling that we see, there's, there's, there's no need to think of it in terms of different styles and different countries. It's just kind of a one evolving form. I mean, yeah, there are, there are at least two modes of thinking when it comes to this, right? And the first is that jazz is just jazz, right? It doesn't matter which locale that you put it in. Of course, it's going to adapt to that that new location, that new place. But when you hear it, you're going to say, "Oh, yeah, well, you know, well, you know, that's jazz, right?" Or you know. And then there's this second line of thought that sort of says that jazz is inherently like something that's going to change and morph. Um, and that's the beauty of jazz, you know, with improvisation, that it's going to have this ability to become something new and this sort of hybridity and, 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 and change and become different. And so we'll, in a sense, you know, Adorno was wrong about jazz, right, in terms of this, terms of this sort of mechanical reproduction, right? We see sort of like this, this multiplicity of bifurcations into different kind of forms, right? Ethiopian jazz, for example, is still, is, you know, it's distinct. It's still jazz. You hear it and you're like, okay, the elements of jazz are there, mm -hmm. but of course they're using their folk music, you know, on top right. of that. Um, but you can still say, okay, I, that still sounds like jazz. Now, aesthetically, whether one likes it or not, you know, that's, you know, that's up to the individual listener. But um, you can definitely hear um, that there are, some people in groups who are still trying to, one, maybe use Chinese musical instruments, you know, to, to play jazz, um, or, you know, trying to use those folk melodies to, you know, I mean, that's still there. I mean, I think that's still a draw. I, and I think that it's going to just, you know, take them time to sort of figure that out. You had, um, you know, Kenny Garrett, you know, the, the alto saxophonist yeah. who's, who's a master uh, saxophonist, you know, I mean, he's, you know, come to, to China and 
taken some of those melodies and, you know, created, you know, so, I mean, so I think there's always going to be that. I'm not sort of like this very stringent person, like, let's say, you know, you know, Wynton Marcellus, people sort of bag on because he's like, oh, he's like this sort of jazz militant and jazz has to be (laughs) fit in these parameters. And if it doesn't, it's not jazz. More power to Wynton, you know, he's made a case for why he feels you know, jazz is this certain thing, and there are a lot of people who put money behind that. And right. you know, you you can't really hate on that. You just have to say, hey, he's keeping the tradition alive. There's a lot of money right. going into Lincoln Center, but there are also other spaces too where people are, you know, playing jazz that don't get that level of like corporate, you know, support. So, for example, the second documentary, if I can even plug that, which hopefully will be finished by next year. Um, deals with just this, this, this thing is that, so on the West Coast, you have, you know, the Asian American, uh, jazz movement or the Asian American movement. And it's, um, you know, late 70s, early 80s, you have these, you know, Asian American jazz musicians, African American musicians who are using the music to sort of push for, uh, social justice issues that are uh, not only uh, beneficial for African-Americans, but also for the Asian-American um, uh, situation as well, too, um, because they were inspired by the music out of the Black Power movement and, you know, uh, uh, political figures out of the Black Power movement. And so, and they're still there, you know, they've been working on this music for a very long time. They're still very politically, very active with their music uh, in a way that jazz stopped being for, uh, you know, in the ninth, maybe by the 19, mid 1970s, you know, late 1970s. Um, so I'm talking about people like, you know, John Jang and um, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Francis Wong and Dr. Right. Anthony Brown uh, and, and a host of others, uh, Mark Izu. So these people are, are still working. And, and then most of them will say, say, hey, you know, like John Jang says, hey, I'm playing black music. He's like, yeah, I'm doing all this other stuff, but you know, I'm I'm playing black music, and you know, he was mentored and friends with like people like Max Roach. So there's a lineage that ties to some of the the greatest jazz musicians, you know, on the planet. So they have that history, right? And they're they're moving the genre forward in their particular way, right? And uh, which is also very relevant. So again, like you know, I, I look at these different multiplicities. Of, of what's happening going on with jazz. I mean, it's still jazz. It still very much comes out of the black social, historical, cultural experience, right? But everybody can play it. Anybody can take it up. You know, it's for, it's it's a contribution and a gift to the world. You know, it's it's for the world to play. I just don't want us to forget the the history that it comes out of, right? But but everybody can play it. It's for everybody. Well, I, I think that's really cool that you. That you're working on a, a second documentary, a follow-up to this one. And I, I do want to talk more about some of your future plans as well. But bef- before I do, I, I know that before you, you went back to the to, went to get your PhD, um, you worked a long time in education in China, and particularly in study abroad, like David and I have as well in our careers. One of the things that I, 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 you, know, you worked on was trying to increase the number of students who historically are underrepresented in study abroad and helping them to get more opportunities to travel abroad, travel to China. And I wanted to know, look, from your perspective, where do you think the future of study abroad, especially in terms of 
you know, underrepresented groups. Do you think it's getting better or do you think it's still, we're still kind of stuck where we were five or six years ago with the huge caveat, of course, that nobody's studying abroad in China at the moment, but, you know, in the future, theoretically, when things get back to something looks like normal, what do you think that will look like? Well, that's a great question. And, and thank you for bringing that up um, because we all do share um, this love for international education. So my study abroad program from 2005, 2010, uh, Black Study Abroad is what, what it was called. And I was specifically trying to increase, help increase the number of you know minority, particularly African-American students going abroad. There were, we had some success, right? I mean, you know, several dozen, you know, African-American students who went to China, even students who hadn't thought of study abroad before as sort of a viable option of things to do. Um, I'm, and I still have students who are living in China, who are living in places like Africa, you know, like they're still, they're living abroad as a, that's their home, that's their career. They've decided that um, to do that. And so I'm, I'm very happy and proud that that was one of the um, outcomes of, of the program. And I wish we could have, I, I wish the study abroad industry could have seen the need for our program in a way that they're now very open to. Um, but at that time, my program was seen as anathema to, to what study abroad was about. You know, like, why are we having this program with just black students or minority students? Why are they having their own program? That's not work. Study abroad is about expanding your horizons. I mean, I'm like, yes, yes, yes to all of that. But we have to get them abroad first. And we have to understand that there are some, you know, uh, needs and some, some fears there that we have to take care of. And one of the ways that we, we, we mitigate that is by putting a lot of these students in a program with each other where they do feel safe and they do feel comfortable. Yeah, we had like, you know, okay, like 10, 15 students, you know, all together. And the first couple weeks, they were like, oh, like hanging out with each other. But what happened at that third week was that they started like just stretching out. I saw that they weren't hang, really hanging out that much with each other anymore. They were like, okay, I can do this by myself. You know, I mean, and, and, and here's again, you know, black students aren't a monolith, right? They're, you know, they're, they're very different people, different personalities, different backgrounds, everything. So when they started finding their tribe within other people, other groups, they were gone. But the thing was that we just had to get them over there first and we had to get them comfortable. And they always had that safety net with each other. But once they got there, man, it was it was it was just yeah. And so that was my point, and and it fell on deaf ears in a lot of places. I think now most people are willing to like, yeah, that was probably a good idea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so so here's the thing: the numbers have not changed. the The percentages have not changed, right? You, um, the last time I checked, we're still not getting. We're, we're around five six percent you know, of all study abroad students are African-American. I mean, the overall numbers have increased, but the percentages haven't, right? And, and that's because the same problems are still there. The same issues are still there, and they're not being addressed, right? Um, and so we have to uh, address those issues. You see there's an increased enrollment in historically black colleges and universities. That's not surprising for me. And it's because, like, you know, you know, black students are wanting to go to a place where they're going to feel safe 
and not have to really worry about racism. They'll have to worry about other stuff, but they won't have to worry about <laughs> that per se, right? So it, that's not surprising to me um, that that these students will start to gravitate, you know, towards those spaces that they feel are more safe. And so in, in study abroad, we have to do that. We have to think about, at least think about doing the same thing, right? Creating programs that are, again, um, predominantly, let's say, African-American or predominantly Latinx or Latin, Latino, Latina um, programs um, specifically for the needs of those students and get out the way and stop thinking that somehow this is a disservice to those students by putting them all on this one program. I always thought that was very antiquated thinking on the part of study abroad administrators and saying like, oh, we, you know, like, no, this is what study abroad is about. We're, we're just, tr we're trying to get them overseas and this is the best way to do it. And once they have this experience, they're going to have more confidence to be able to have other experiences and do other things, right? So hopefully more programs will will move towards that model. I'm not sure. I don't know. But for me, I think that's one way um, one one way of doing it. And again, too, when you have these programs that say, you know, predominantly, let's say, African-American program, that doesn't mean that other people can't join. doesn't mean that white students can't join this program. Of course they can, right? But um, I, I think that's that's one of the ways to go moving forward. And some people may disagree, but I, I still feel wholeheartedly that that's one of the ways to move forward. Uh, and there are other things that we can do in terms of we just providing more money, you know, providing it's, it's sometimes not enough even just to provide a partial or a full scholarship. Well, how am I supposed to like eat and travel when I get to the country? Right. <laughs> um, and then what am I supposed to do? when I come back home, right? Because I've been abroad for so long, I don't have any money waiting for me when I get back. So one of the things that, you know, for people who would listen that I proposed was that, yeah, let's have, let's give the full rides, the partial scholarships, but let's also have money for the students, one, when they leave and go to that country, so when they're in country, they're not starving, and then have something for them um, when they come back after a successful completion of the program so that when they get home, they're not exactly, oh my God, I don't have any money for my apartment right. or for food or whatever. So we have to, we have to think about these things um, and we and, and that's going to require a little bit more money. Yeah, money actually is going to be the key thing. American students are so stressed with student debt and, and other things. So yeah, yeah, we've talked a lot. This could be a, a topic of another podcast. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Study abroad and especially uh, minority students abroad. And I'd love to hear more about it. Probably we should take a wrap right now. But I do want people to be able to sort of access you. And uh, what you're doing in your do you maybe first of all give us the again um, it's on Vimeo right the, yes. the, 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 the maybe give us the we'll, we'll try we'll put a link um, on whatever we can uh, tell us about uh, do you do you have a website do you have some material that people can access how can we learn more about you sure so you can go to www yellowjazzblackmusic.com yellowjazzblackmusic all one word um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so there's a website there. From there, you can, um, you know, see a trailer of the film. It'll take you to the Vimeo site uh, where you can purchase the film, rent the film. Um, there's a blog there with some more information about stuff that I, I couldn't, that didn't make it into the actual documentary. Um, there's a, a merchandise page. I also was able to um, get a couple of artists 
to like uh, uh, one artist, the, the the movie poster, which is which is looks fantastic, and there's also an an an, an, um, an art painting that we have um, that was painted by you know artist Ted Ellis, and um, the movie poster was done by uh, Faisal Abdullah, who is a uh, PhD um, artist professor at the University of uh, Wisconsin Madison. So I was really happy that they you know uh, uh, agreed to to do those for us. So yeah, it's all on the site take a gander it's uh you know this is this project's been you know um four years in the making you know started this in 2016 so happy that you know that it's out there and it's completed and it's done and thank you all so much for having me oh man it is it is a really i recommend it highly it is it is one of the best things i've seen out there on on jazz in china for sure it's just an absolute a classic already and you you there may be things you could add to it but you're you're work, you're still working in this uh, on this area, so we look forward to uh, seeing what you do in the future. Well, Marquitas, thank you great. so much, Marquitas. Full disclosure, also, David's in the movie. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know we've we've got to get you back here, Marquitas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, still, definitely. There's, this a, there's, fun. there's still a lot of gold to mine here, and it'd be great to do it with you. So appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Well, thank you all, and thank you uh, for everyone who's listening. Uh, another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. And we'll talk to you next time. 